It is 7-Eleven, not the convenience store, but uh, July 11. <laughs> and uh, we're at an interesting point, if you recall, and I'll back up here just a little bit so that we refresh our memories where we left off. I know it's been two weeks or so or more. Um, we're at this point in Daniel 11 where we need to stop and do the story of the Maccabees and the story of Hanukkah. Because if we don't do it now, it won't fit in properly. And it's not in Daniel. Uh, it's not in our scriptures. It's only in the Apocrypha. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up a little bit to just kind of ease us from where we were last time into where we are today. And uh, then we'll, we'll get going. Hopefully we'll, we'll finish the study of um, Hanukkah and the Maccabees today. And my aim is to have this all finished by the second Sunday of August, because the third Sunday of August is a very special day for someone online here. And so we'll try to finish uh, before that date. Okay, let's go. Let's shift back to 168 BC. Remember Antiochus Epiphany? He heads back to Egypt with a mind to take the whole nation of Egypt. Remember, he secured parts of Egypt in, in previous rallies there, but he wanted the whole uh, country and he didn't get it. What he got was parts of it on the northern end when he attacked from the southern end of, of Israel. Uh, he got parts of the northern end of Egypt, but he wanted the whole thing. So this time, though, he runs up against the Roman Navy. Navy. He runs up against warships from Cyprus uh, that were controlled by Rome. And the leader of the Roman warships, if you remember, his name is Popilius Laenus, Popilius Laenus, and he delivers a, a letter to Antiochus Epiphanes from the Roman Senate, which essentially, essentially says, stop any further aggression against Egypt. So Antiochus asks Popilus, Popilius for a time to think about it. Well, Popilius then stoops down he draws a circle in the dirt with his finger around Antiochus Epiphanes, and he says, give me your answer to obey or not obey Rome's order before you step out of that circle. So Antiochus Epiphanes is, is in a pinch. He's in no position to take on the whole of Rome. So he capitulates, he agrees, and for the moment, he agrees not to attack Egypt anymore, and he heads home again. And like the last time, he has to, if you remember, he passes from the south uh, in Egypt through going north through Israel in order to go back to his home base. Now, remember, he's humiliated. He's been humiliated by Rome. And he is in a foul mood as he crosses into Israel and into Jerusalem. Uh, verse 30 and uh, says for warships, Daniel 11, uh, verse 30 says for warships from Western coastlands will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home, but he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. 
So as he passes through Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes begins a, a counterintelligence strategy, so to speak. He actively recruits Jews who are willing to side with him to ultimately take on Rome in a rebellion. Verse 31, his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, set up the sacrilegious sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. Well, here's the story behind the story here. Antiochus Epiphanes sends one of his generals, Apollonius, with an army of about 22,000 soldiers into Jerusalem and on what was billed as a peace mission. Well, it was a ruse. Apollonius and his 22,000 soldiers, they laid siege uh, to Jerusalem on the Sabbath, by the way, and they plundered and burned the city and took women and children as slaves. Now, again, Antiochus, fresh from just being frustrated and humiliated by the Roman uh, government as he tried to invade uh, Egypt, He's bent now on removing Judaism from the face of the earth, kind of like reminds us of, of Hitler in a way. And so he forbids the daily sacrifice at the temple. He demands that all copies of the scrolls containing the law of Moses be destroyed, and he bans all forms of worship of the God of Israel, including festivals and the circumcision rites. And of course, this hits at the heart of what it means to be a Jew. And then to twist the knife a little more in the back of Israel, theologically, Antiochus Epiphanes erects a statue of Zeus on the altar of burnt offering sacrifice in the temple. And he sacrifices a pig on the altar. Of course, a pig is, is an anathema to the Jews to eat it, knowing this will be an abomination to the Jews. He's, he's goading them, so to speak. So further, Antiochus demands that all Jews personally sacrifice a pig on that altar once a month, and that they become worshipers of Zeus and the allies of Antiochus. Well, here's another glimpse of Antiochus' manic nature. Not only were many Jews killed if they did not worship Zeus, but others were forced to get drunk and participate in orgies to worship the god of wine, Bacchus. So if a Jew refused to get drunk, Antiochus's soldiers would actually force wine down their throats until they were drunk, and then they would force them to participate in these orgies. However, there's a small contingent of uh, Jews who remain faithful to God. They refuse to worship Zeus or Bacchus, and uh, they refused to ally with Antiochus Epiphanes. So this is all building up now to the revolt of the Maccabees and the reason the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. So we're now in the process of we're going to connect the, the historical dots. And it's all because of the wickedness of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his war against God and his people. And it's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come as we read about and think about what Antiochus Epiphanes does to the Jews, it's very reminiscent 
of what we read about that uh, the Antichrist does to the temple uh, in his last three and a half years of the tribulation. So as we enter this time of the revolt of the Maccabees, there's a uh, significant time shift. There's a time warp in Daniel 11. From verses 1 to 35, we have heard along with Daniel the messenger and his prophecies. Remember the messenger, and we're not sure who that is. Some think it's Christ, some think it's Gabriel. We don't know. We'll just satisfy ourselves and say it's the messenger as it's identified in Scripture. For Daniel, what he's hearing is all in the future. What we're reading in verses 1 through 35 has all been in the past. It's all before the birth of Christ. So we can go back and in extra-biblical historical records, for example, from Josephus and others, and we can verify that all of these things that the messengers said would happen actually came to pass. We can validate it. But in verse 36, we're going to enter this time warp that takes us into what we studied in Revelation. It's the future, it's the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, those that we studied recently in, in Revelation. So let's complete the history that's already occurred. The Jews who refused to turn against God were mostly persecuted and martyred for their faith. Go back to uh, verse 33. Wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. This is the persecution initiated by Antiochus Epiphanes. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure, until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. So it's, as you know, any time that God's people or the church are persecuted, God's people become stronger. Sad to say that's the case throughout history. So that begins, that brings us rather to the beginning of the revolt the revolt of the Maccabees by the Jews. And we're looking at a relatively short time of this result. It's uh, maybe about six, seven years, 167 to 160 BC. And by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes literally went insane and died in 163 in Persia during the Jewish revolution. So he actually wasn't around when, uh, when the Jews were, uh, were successful. And if you want to make a footnote, this chapter of history involving Antiochus Epiphanes is also described way back in Daniel 8, verses 23 to 25. Let me read those real quick. This is referring to, to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. In other words, he's going to go insane himself. And uh, really, God, uh, God takes him out. Now, 
Before we enter this time warp in verse 36, we're going to dig into an important historical narrative that's not part of the Bible that we know, nor is it part of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the history that we're going to draw from, and it's verifiable history, is in the books of what included in the books of what we call the Apocrypha. I'm going to spend a little time on that just so we get a full understanding of what the Apocrypha is in the, in the specific books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. By the way, there are actually four books of Maccabees, but only books one and two deal with the history involving Antiochus Epiphanes and the desecration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and the Jewish revolt. And by the way, that turned out to be an amazing strategy of guerrilla warfare that ultimately enabled the Jews to retake Jerusalem despite being greatly outnumbered and then restore the desecrated temple to its proper glory and its function in uh, Jewish life. So the history that we're going to take a look at today includes the story of Hanukkah and why it's still celebrated by Jews today, and it's a very important part of this historical record. And in the context of our celebration of Christmas, we'll find out why the celebrations are usually around the same time of the year, which doesn't make a lot of Jews happy, but it's the way it turned out. So a quick word about, uh, or not so quick even, about the Apocrypha. It's somewhat difficult to really pinpoint how many books there are in the Apocrypha, because various church systems have chosen different lists to be part of their canon. Uh, these books were written generally uh, between 300 and 30 BC, prior to the uh, birth of Christ, covering a historical period of that 400 years. We call it the silent period between the ending of the Old Testament as we know it and the New Testament as we know it. Probably the most familiar list of the books of the Apocrypha are those that are adapted and adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. Their history dates back to the first Roman Catholic Pope Gregory the Great in 623 AD. He's rumored, by the way, to have forced Jerome, the great Bible scholar and linguist, to translate the apocryphal books into Latin for use by the Roman Catholic Church. And in the process, uh, Jerome said, you know, there's some interesting things about this. I, I'm not sure that these are actually inspired by God. But uh, again, that was 623 AD, and the first uh, Pope Gregory the Great uh, determined that they would become part of the Roman Catholic canon of Scripture. The next affirmation of some of the apocryphal books came during the Roman Catholic Church's Council of Trent that you probably heard of uh, that took place in northern Italy, which was convened actually as a counter-reformation to the Protestant Reformation, uh, led, of course, by Martin Luther and John Calvin. The Council of Trent actually met over a period of 18 years, almost 20 years, from 1545 to 1563, and it involved about 40 Roman clergy, most of them uh, probably bishops of, of that order. At the conclusion of the Council of Trent in 1563, the Roman Catholic Church adopted nine books, some partial, 
uh, with apocryphal writings, which included 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Maccabees 3 and 4 are not part of the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. So why doesn't the general Protestant Bible accept the apocryphal books as part of our 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament? Well, here's a, a quick bullet point list to answer that question, and this is what uh, Bible scholars have used over the years to say we feel that this is a, a these are separate writings, um, not necessarily breathed by God to men. Uh, and they, the, those points are a lack of historical manuscripts. In other words, uh, there aren't previous Jewish writings that mention the same uh, incidences or the same quotes. Uh, the canon of Jewish scriptures had already closed. Josephus, uh, the great Jewish historian, said, although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable of scripture. The styles do not fit known scriptures. For example, there's an apocryphal book about Esther, and Esther is portrayed here in, in a highly uh, dramatic an emotional way, which was not consistent with the book of Esther. Uh, it's not saying it's not necessarily historical. The question is, uh, is it as, as is accepted? Uh, hang on just a second. John is here. Let me stop the recording and pick him up. Okay. Okay. So uh, uh, also there are themes and principles that run counter to the doctrine of the Protestant Church, uh, of the Reformation. Um, neither Jesus nor the Apostles ever quoted any books of the Apocrypha. Uh, they teach our alternative ways to salvation other than salvation through grace, uh, through Jesus Christ. And the writings uh, oftentimes admittedly are from men, not necessarily inspired by God or God-breathed. Does not mean they're not historical, uh, but it means that the church over the Protestant church over the years doesn't feel that they uh, contain that spirit-breathed authenticity. So that's why, um, for example, Martin Luther included uh, the Apocrypha, the great reformer, but he included it as a total separate book. And, and so he felt that they were worthy to look at in terms of history, uh, but doctrinally, he, uh, he did not uh, agree with them. And just to touch on some of the doctrinal issues involving the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocrypha brings up such doctrines as purgatory, uh, prayers for the dead, uh, indulgences and alms, which help pay for the forgiveness of sins, storing up good deeds in order to pay for salvation, a crying grace to outweigh evil deeds on the day of judgment. There goes Brutus, the dog there in the background, and the rite of exorcism, using objects and prayers to expel uh, Satan. So uh, these apocryphal books did not become part of the, the Re Reformation nor the uh, Protestant canon of Scripture. Many of the doctrines unique to Catholicism are uh, found in the apocryphal books, and that's why the Roman Catholic Church has them as part of their canon of Scripture. Uh, Martin Luther said this, 
He said, uh, the apocryphal books are not considered equal to the Holy Scriptures, but they are useful and good to read. So he acknowledged that there was good history there. And I, I am uh, very supportive of reading some of these apocryphal books because there is good history that, that we can read there that gives us some background. So in the spirit, it's kind of like looking up history and Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica is not God-inspired, but there's good history in it, generally. All right, so looking at the at First and Second Maccabees as not equivalent to the Holy Scriptures, but useful and good to read, as Martin Luther would say, let's learn about the Maccabean Revolution and the beginnings of Hanukkah from these two books. I'm not going to read them. Don't worry. It takes about four hours to read just the two books, and I shall not do that. However, uh, there's a few salient passages that apply to our study of Daniel 11 that prompted the Maccabean revolt. And let me read those to you. It's a fairly short passage. First Maccabees 1. After Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius of the Persian and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. He had previously become king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he felt sick and perceived that he was dying. So he summoned his most honored officers and brought with him from youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. And after Alexander had reigned 12 years, hang on just a second. After Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule, each in his own place. And remember, this is Alexander the Great. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their descendants after him for many years, and they caused many evils on the earth. From then came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greece. Greeks. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we are separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. Well, this proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to the Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision. I don't even know how they did that or what that means, but it sounds like it really hurts, and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And when Antiochus Epiphany saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become a king of the land of Egypt in order that he might reign over both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt with a strong force, with chariots and elephants and cavalry and with a large fleet. He engaged King Ptolemy of Egypt in battle, and Ptolemy turned and fled before him, and many were wounded and fell. 
And they captured the fortified cities in the land of Egypt, and he plundered the land of Egypt. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned. In the 143rd year, he went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. Remember that line, the lampstand of the light and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drinks, offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went to his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young men and young women became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Isn't that sad? The, the Jewish people were so distraught and so impacted by this that the physical beauty of the women of Israel actually faded. The, the horror was so bad. Every bridegroom took up lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. All right. Now, before we get to Hanukkah, which we're going to get to pretty quickly, let's go back and remember the importance of the lampstand. Because we can fly by the story of Hanukkah and say, big deal, it was a menorah. Why, why celebrate it for all these millennia? Let's go back to Exodus 25. And let's listen to the importance that God puts on what we call the menorah. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center's stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Remember when we studied in Revelation what these lampstands looked like? We call them candles, but they were actually um, little uh, uh, containers that contained oil. And then the wick uh, came out of the end of that container, if you remember. And so the, the wick was lit, and the oil in the little cup is what would fuel the, uh, uh, fuel the wick. And so there were uh, seven of these on each side and one in the center. Craft the center stem of the lamp stand with four lamp cups shaped like the almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There um, will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be of one piece with the center stem, and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. And you're going to need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and its accessories. See, for centuries and centuries and centuries, these were God's instructions. This lampstand was a holy thing. 
And the point here is it from the very beginning was a holy article in the temple. In Old Testament times, it was in the Holy of Holies. And as you recall, only the high priests were allowed in the Holy of Holies. The, the, the regular uh, citizens of uh, Israel were not allowed in the Holy of Holies, only the high priests. So they actually didn't see the 75-pound pure gold uh, menorah. So to desecrate this was a terrible affront to the Jewish children of God. All right, now let's connect the dots that lead up to the reason for Hanukkah. And for that, I'm going to draw upon mostly verbatim, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, the story of Hanukkah from a Jewish learning site called jewishhistory.org. Here we go. The Greek army exerted a very heavy hand against the Jews. First, they forced the Jews to finance their war through the collection of taxes. Remember that? Antiochus Epiphanes heavily taxed the Jews in order to pay for his war efforts. Then they forced them to quarter their soldiers in Jewish homes. And finally, the Greeks were determined to crush the Jewish religion. This is all Antiochus Epiphanes. First, they took the statue of Zeus and mounted it in the courtyard of the temple. Next, the Greeks, under Antiochus Epiphanes, banned the observance of the Sabbath on the pain of death. Then, the Talmud records, there was a period of time which lasted a number of decades when the Greek officer in town had the right to live with an Israeli woman on her wedding night before her husband-to-be. Can you imagine this type of persecution going on? The Greeks also banned circumcision. Whoever circumcised his child was put to death. They killed both the father and the child. And then the Greeks demanded that the altars to the Greek idols be established and that the sacrifices be offered on a regular basis in every Jewish town. And finally, the Jewish educational system was entirely interrupted. So about the year 166 BC, a group finally stood up to the Greeks under a man named Mattathias and his family, and they were known as the Hasmoneans. And we don't know much about them, except they were of noble descent, probably from the priestly class in Israel, including those who had served as high priests. They lived in a small town called Modin, which was about, at that time, 12 miles northwest from Jerusalem. By the way, that town still exists today. It's about uh, 20 miles west of modern Jerusalem. So one day, a Greek contingent sent by Antiochus Epiphanes marches in, they sell, set up an altar, gathered all the Jews, and they forced them to sacrifice a pig on the altar to Zeus. Antiochus Epiphanes knew that this would terrorize the Jews. Then they asked for a Jewish volunteer to perform the sacrifice. One stepped forward, and as he approached the altar... Mattathias stabbed him to death. In other words, Mattathias refused to let one of his countrymen sacrifice a pig on the altar. Well, chaos broke out. The Greek army attempted to subdue the crowd, but the Jews were armed, and they slaughtered the entire Greek patrol. And so now, 
Mattathias had five sons, all of whom were people of great organizational leadership. They were pious, committed Jews, Yohanan, Simon, Jonathan, Judah, and Eliaser. And so what they did was they ran away from Jerusalem into caves, and they organized an army, not to fight an open war, but to fight a guerrilla war, much like the Vietnamese did in the uh, Vietnam War. Originally, and, and fr frankly, like the American uh, revolutionists did against the British Army. Uh, originally, they organized a force, these Israeli guerrilla warfare guys of about 3,000 men. They grew it to about 6,000, and they never had more than about 12,000 men, which is amazing considering what God allowed them to do. The general of the army was a great man named Judah, known to the world as Judah the Maccabee, or as Shakespeare calls him, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus, by the way, is the Greek word for hammer, but the Jews took it and made it Jewish by declaring that Maccabee stood for the first four letters in Exodus 15.11, meaning, who is like you, God, in the Hebrew. And uh, that was often said by Moses and the people after uh, the miraculous drowning of the uh, Egyptians in the Red Sea. They said, who is like you, God, and that's the acronym uh, that formed the name Maccabeus. So an enormous Greek army, Syrian Greek army, uh, sent by Antiochus Epiphanes, numbering almost 50,000 men, marched into Judea. So Judah the Maccabee marshaled his forces, and with guile and courage, he outmaneuvered the far larger Greek army. Remember, they, they brought 50,000 men. Judah, at its height, uh, he, he only had 12,000, maybe only 6,000 men. So they were totally outnumbered by this 50,000-person army. And they outmaneuvered the Greek army, forcing it to divide and then destroying it by its various components. They killed many of the thousands of these army uh, men and forced the survivors to flee north into Syria. So it took a lot of years, but their hit-and-run tactics wore down three great armies. And the Jews, though, paid a, a great price in terms of blood. Mattathias died in the early going. Uh, Judah Maccabea, uh, Maccabeus was killed in the third great battle. His brother Eliasar died while he was attacking an elephant. Uh, I guess the elephant stepped on him, I, I suppose. And Johanan and Jonathan were, were killed in battle as well. The only Maccabee brother who survived was the brother named Simon. So the last famous battle was at a fortress called Antonius. And that was the fortress that guarded the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. When Antonius fell, the Jews came back to the temple. When they conquered Antonius and they conquered the Syrian Greek army there, they came back to the temple. They shattered the statue of Zeus. They cleaned the temple as best they could. And any priests who worked for the Greeks were sent away or they were executed on the spot. Now, they only found one small flask of uncontaminated oil with the seal of the high priest. This menorah, remember the first thing they wanted to do is get this menorah lit. 
because this was the thing God said he wanted in the Holy of Holies. So they looked there, but and, and they, they, they made a, a menorah, but they could only find one flask with the approval of the high priest or his seal of approval of olive oil. So there was only one day of oil for what they needed to last eight days for the menorah. The amount of oil remaining in the one uncontaminated flask was only enough to burn for one day. And again, they needed to, to burn for eight days. So what did they do? Well, they lit the one flask and miraculously it burned for eight days, even though it only had one day's worth of oil in it. It miraculously lasted for eight days. And that's why the Jews observe Hanukkah for eight nights, because they, uh, they are celebrating the eight days that they believe were a miracle sent by God to keep that uh, lampstand burning for the eight days, the ceremonial eight days that they were looking for. Now, the Talmud actually doesn't say a lot about uh, Hanukkah. There are perhaps... Um, uh, 40 lines about it spread out over different volumes. And uh, whereas almost all other holidays have an entire Talmudic um, volume about them, few words in the Talmud have anything to say about Hanukkah, and they are fairly cryptic. But what the Talmud does say is that the important thing about Hanukkah is to advertise the miracle. So people have to recognize that a miracle took place here. It's vital to the Jews to keep the wonder, the miracle in Hanukkah. And that's why the rabbis gave more emphasis to the miracle of the lights than the military victory. Probably you don't hear a lot uh, at Hanukkah about the military victory, which led to the lighting of the menorah. Uh, so the rabbis chose to focus on the miracle itself of God keeping that one flask, that one uh, candle uh, burning. Now, history provides new, numerous examples of outnumbered forces defeating superpowers using guerrilla tactics. And you have to ask yourselves, why was the Maccabean victory so miraculous? Well, I think it's a question the Jews might have asked themselves. How did they possibly take on an army when they only had maybe 6,000 to 12,000 people? How did they beat a well-equipped army of 50,000 people? Uh, how did they possibly do that? And they believe, and I believe, that this was a, a miracle of God to allow Jews, the, his people, to uh, retake the temple. So, I mean, can, I, can I inject yes, something? You can. Um, it reminds me of Gideon, um, where God yes. only allowed him to take 300 against um, a, a much, much bigger army. And it also reminds me of the, um, when we were in Yorktown and um, we were studying when Heather was in eighth grade and we were, um, they were talking about the history of America at Yorktown and how um, it was really divine intervention that mm. we bring the British there. Um, it, it all had to do with, you know, a shrouding um, uh, you know, by clouds and etc., and um, and so I think throughout um, history, at least in those three examples, um, 
God touched down or the Lord, whichever one, and uh, divinely intervened. Yeah. Well, I, and, and I, that those are good examples of how, how God works. And uh, we certainly see that, uh, see that here. And, and the thing is, we only learn that uh, really about the military victory from First and Second Maccabees. That's why it's important to read some of these apocryphal books, not so much for doctrinal emphasis, but for the history that we can uh, glean from it. So again, the rabbis throughout Jewish history have said it's important to advertise, to make well-known the miracle that God provided. And they choose to focus on that one little flask that burned for eight days, even though there was only uh, one day of oil available. And they often cite this uh, passage from, or this uh, uh, verse from Zechariah 4.6, not by the army, not by power, but through my spirit, says God. Certainly that um, applies here. So there's this uh, indefinable spiritual electric charge that that binds Jewish generations together that cannot be found really in any book. It can only be had when parents and their grandparents pass on the traditions with their children around the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah celebrating and discussing and advertising uh, the miracle because that way they they get in touch with uh, their their wonders of the past and the miracles that God did in their midst. All right, so between uh, Daniel 11 again verse 35 and 36 where we have this treasured and very important chapter of Jewish history and the miracle of the single candle of the sacred menorah that lasted eight days with only one day of oil. Um, and I'm going to conclude here. Boy, we're going to end just about on time uh, with a summary from a, a website called whychristmas.org. I think this is a really good summary about Hanukkah as it is practiced today. Hanukkah is the Jewish festival of lights, and it remembers the rededication of the second Jewish temple in Jerusalem in Israel. This happened in the 160s BC before Jesus was born. Hanukkah is the Hebrew and Aramaic word for dedication. Hanukkah lasts for eight days and starts on the eve of Kislev 25, the month, month the Jewish calendar occurs about the same time as our December. And because the Jewish calendar is lunar, in other words, it uses the moon for its dates, Kislev can happen anywhere from our late November to uh, late December. This year, in 2021, Hanukkah will begin the evening of Sunday, November 28th, and it will last until the evening of Monday, December 6th. During Hanukkah now, in the contemporary celebration of it, on each of the eight nights, a candle is lit in the special menorah or candelabra called a Hanukkiah. And there's a special ninth candle called the Shamash, or the servant candle, which is used to light the other candles. That's the center candle. The Shamash is often in the center of the other candles, and obviously is, is in a higher position than the others. On the first night, the Shamash is uh, used to light the first candle. 
On the second night, the second candle is lit. The third night, the third candle is lit and on through the eight days until uh, at the end of the eight days, all of the eight candles plus the center shamash are burning. And it's a time uh, for the Jews to thank and, and bless God. And they often have a special blessing that is said uh, before and after the lighting of the candles and a special Jewish hymn is sung uh, at the same time. The menorah often is put in the front window of Jewish homes so that people passing by can see the lights and remember the story of Hanukkah, remember the rabbi's instruction to advertise the miracle. And so most Jewish families and their households have a special menorah and celebrate Hanukkah. It's also a time, much like our, uh, our Christmas, for giving and receiving presents, and gifts are often given on each night. Uh, lots of games are played during Hanukkah. The most par uh, popular, I'm sure you've heard of it, is the dreidel, which is Yiddish. Uh, the Hebrew is sivivon, sivivon. It's a, you've seen it, it's a four-sided top uh, and, and has a Hebrew letter on each of the four sides. The four letters are the first letter of uh, a phrase, which means a great miracle happened there. And each player, then they have a little uh, container uh, in a pot. And, and so you put a coin or a nut or my favorite, a chocolate uh, in the container in the pot. And you spin the little top, you spin the little dreidel. And if the letter is noon, nothing happens. If it's gimel, the player wins the pot. They, they get the whole thing. So if, if enough players have played and nobody wins, you get a lot of chocolate or coins or, or whatever. If it's hay, you win half the pot. And if it's shin, which means for there, uh, you have to put another item into the pot. In other words, you lose and you have to put another item in, in the pot and the next person uh, has the opportunity to spin. So there's the story of the Maccabees and Hanukkah. And it's all that that transpires between verses 35 and 36. And it's all that transpires in those 400 years between our Old Testament and the beginning of our New Testament uh, with the advent of the birth of, uh, of Jesus Christ. So I thought it was important. I, I hope Thank you for uh, going on this journey with me. I thought it was important to review all of that so we have it in our minds and, and, and we have that history that is in that what we normally call the, uh, the silent period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, so next week, we're going to enter the time warp. Uh, of uh, Daniel 11, beginning with verse 36. A lot of it's going to be very familiar to you. And as, you're, as you may want to read ahead, remember that what we're going to be reading about is the rise of the Antichrist, who we studied in Revelation. And uh, again, this is given to Daniel by the messenger. Okay, Mike? that was a... Yes. Uh, excuse me. I thought you were going to take a sabbatical. <laughs>
Well, we are, but we're going to finish Daniel before we oh, do that. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. missed that part of it. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. Because it's very interesting, but I know you probably need a rest. We're going to finish Daniel. How many yeah, chapters do we have? Only one more. We have okay. uh, the last part of, of Daniel uh, 36, Daniel 11, 36 to 45, about uh-huh. 10 verses there. And then we have chapter 12, which is, I don't remember how many, but it's much, uh, much shorter. So as soon as, yeah, as soon as we finish Daniel 12, uh, we're going to take uh, a little hiatus and I'll keep you uh, informed, but I, uh, yes, I'd like a little uh, break, a little break. uh, (laughs) Yes. And, you know. Just, are you just, still going to do the morning church at, uh oh yeah at Sherwood? okay yeah, yeah yeah okay so instead of staying up till uh two in the morning i'll only have to stay up till maybe about one nine <laughs> or ten yeah <laughs> so i know anyway, how it not, is <laughs> not that i mind i i think this is important and i i really love doing the research and, and sharing it with you um so um it, by the way this is not code for Pastor Mike is going to do away with the serving church. Not at all. It's just no, uh, no. I, I need uh, a little bit of a break, and and we and want so you we'll to probably, have a break. We support yeah, we, Mike, you time. deserve it, and we care enough about you. We want you to take a break. What was that commercial? You deserve a break today. What was that McDonald's? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, McDonald's. I'm not going to McDonald's ago. though. that was a really long time ago yeah (laughs) all right so thanks for asking that question lee yeah we'll we'll finish daniel um first and again i anticipate we'll finish it uh by the second sunday in uh august i think okay all right any other any other uh questions at all john you're muted He must okay. not hear. Yeah, may not. All right. Uh, all right. Thank you again. I hope it wasn't boring. I find it fascinating. And I needed reminders. You know, we have quite a few Jewish friends that observe the Jewish holidays. And uh, it just helps me appreciate them more and their dedication to... Uh, to what they believe and why they why they believe it uh, and uh so yes mike i was just going to say i enjoyed that that half a sermon at the greater true light that you did <laughs> i thought it was really nice you know and talking about your 20-year friendship with um with the minister i just all of a sudden his name uh carl bryant yeah. yeah, Carl Bryant. I should have known that. I did know it. But anyhow, uh, I, I thought that was very touching. Well, and, and thank you for taking the time to be there. Uh, that was uh, wonderful for you to come. And uh, we love Carl and his family. And, and that, that you, you probably don't know. Let me just say this real quick. That congregation is small. But it funds ministries around the world. And you it know, blows it, Carl away. 
It, yes. And love grows there. There's yes. not a, you can walk in that church. I was telling this to Dave too, and you know that love grows there. It's yeah, not amen. about agendas or it, it love. Love is just what it's about and caring about your fellow man. I, I love it there really. Yeah. It's uh, well, there was another uh, uh, more whitish congregation that wanted to merge uh, with True Light Community Church, what, about two years ago? Uh-huh. And I finally called Carl, and I said, can I, because I don't normally do this, can I say something even though you haven't asked me? He says, certainly. I said, Carl, I would just consider it a tragedy if you diluted the African-Americanness of this congregation. You don't exclude white people, of course. You don't exclude anyone. And there are Caucasians. There are uh, people of, of many races that are part of that congregation. But it is a traditional Black church. And there's, I believe, a beauty in the different expressions that God allows in the ethnic churches not only in America, but around the world. And I said, Carl, I think if you merge with this congregation, it will destroy the Black history, the ethnicity, and, and the beauty of that ethnicity in God's expression of the church, in the context of God's expression of the church. And I he, so agree. Uh, he, I could hear him smiling over the phone. I could hear it in his voice. And, and he said, yeah, I know. Uh, and, and actually what they did was uh, that particular church uh, took over Baptist Temple. If you're familiar with that, Tim Rimple used to be the pastor there. It's uh, down the street, actually, from True Light. It's on uh, uh, Paradise Road on the north side of the street. A uh, yes. little bit west of uh, Martin Luther King. Yes. Sutter. Yeah. And I'm glad for that. I think that that ultimately was a good move. And, and the reason I bring that up is there often, and I'll quit preaching about this here in a minute, get off my soapbox. There, there's often an expression that a criticism that Sunday morning is the most segregated morning in America. Well, yeah. And it's because God allows different ethnic expressions of his church. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, it's different if you say nobody but us that look the same, sing the same, act the same, smell the same, and eat the same can come. That's different. But when there's that ethnic tradition, I think that's valuable, whether it's Hispanic or African-American or, or Hmong or Vietnamese or Cambodian. I think those are beautiful expressions, and we need to make sure that, that they're not destroyed by the critics that, that snipe on the sidelines. Um, so that's my answer to that is, you know, don't criticize God for what he has set up. So, what, Mike, yeah. one other thing that I love is they're, they're so relaxed. They're not yeah. uptight. They're, they don't have anything wrapped around the axle. They're... 
they're just so relaxed and it's so beautiful. And the pianist was awesome. I just was really impressed. I'm always, and even the Hispanic church, I, I agree with what you say for what it's worth. But even at Sherwood, when the Hispanic, they come in with their music. And I think yeah. it's just a beautiful thing. It, it it absolutely, uh, absolutely is. By the way, the, the just to fill you in, I'll end here in a moment. I've been saying that for five minutes. Uh, <laughs> the, the normal pianist uh, at True Light Community Church is 80. How old is she, Lori? 80, mid 80s? Lori worked a 24-hour shift and got one hour of sleep. So I'm, She I'm might have gone to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she uh it, it's this woman in her mid 80s and she plays piano yes. on fire i mean she could walk into any concert hall and bring the house down with a standing ovation she is amazing well she has been in the hospital uh, apparently is coming out if not already out of the hospital and so they had a substitute uh named markel uh, black, young black guy. I don't know, Lee, what do you think? Maybe he's in his twenties, late twenties. Yeah. Late twenties, early thirties. Mm -hmm. This guy playing, sang like an angel turns yes. out <laughs> that he was hired to, uh, sing and act in some Broadway shows that they were trying to get to the main Broadway stage. He is that talented, humble. And just to hear him play, you know, I could have just sat there. I'd be fine not preaching, just listen to hear him pray and <laughs> sing all day. You know, it would have been all right. So yeah. anyway, thank, thank you, Lee, for that. Um, all right. Briefly, any, any other questions before we close out today? Okay. Um, Lee, uh, how about if, if you close us out today in prayer? Sure. Father, I'd like to thank you for this, uh, this interesting uh, lesson on your history of the Bible. I'd like to thank you for Mike's faithfulness and Anne and John and Brenda and everyone else. Um, Lord, we just, uh, I pray that you go before us and I have a need to pray for the, the people that homeless and, and disadvantaged around us, Lord, that, mm -hmm. that you put anybody that's to be in our path and, and put them there and help us to respond to your word with love. And Father, I thank you for our life, our health, and our, your continued faithful, faithfulness. Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.